Friends, happy Sunday. If you look in your bulletin, you will see that this sermon has a fairly generic title, Loving Mercy. And this is one of those weeks where the development of the sermon took a right turn midweek, and um, I didn't have time to change the title in the bulletin. That's the way this process works sometimes. If I were going to have a title in the bulletin um, that fit better, it would be Scorpions and Eggs, or why theology matters. So I invite you to pray with me before we launch on this journey. Creator of all good things, speak to us this morning your words of mercy and grace that we may know afresh who we are as your people in this world. Amen. Why would a God who is loving make a disaster happen? That question was posed to me in 1995, and the disaster in question was the Hanshin earthquake, which tore apart the city of Kobe where I was living. Thousands of people had died and even more had lost their homes, so asking big questions about God was to be expected. What was less expected was that my Japanese orthodontist would be asking me, his 15-year-old patient, that question. He knew my parents were Christian missionaries. And his question was born out of curiosity more than a crisis of faith. He didn't believe in a loving God. He explained that the Japanese religion of Shinto told stories of all kinds of gods, gods of thunder and water and wind. And since they had no expectation that these gods were loving or benevolent, they could talk about those gods causing natural disasters with no cognitive dissonance. He was genuinely curious about how Christians make sense of such disasters if they do believe in a God who is loving, which is fair. Christians have been grappling with that question for 2,000 years, and it was too far too big a question for me to answer as a freshman in high school, especially with a suction wand in my mouth while my orthodontist adjusted my braces. But I did know what I didn't believe. I did not believe that God caused or even allowed that earthquake. And with the suction wand in my mouth and the orthodontist's bright light in my face, I fumbled through an awkward explanation of an idea that Mr. Rogers has expressed much better. Look for the helpers. As a 15-year-old, that was where I knew to look for God. And even three academic degrees later, I'm pretty much in the same place on that question. Where is God when disaster strikes? Look for the helpers. Theology, what we believe about God, matters. This is because belief in God has proven to be a dangerous idea. It has caused, and continues to cause, a tremendous amount of harm. Which is why what we believe about God, how we speak about God, and what stories we tell about God matters so much. 
In our gospel lesson today, Jesus uses a rhetorical question. If any one of your children were to ask for an egg, who among you would give them a scorpion? It's rhetorical because, of course, no good parent would give their child a poisonous creature in place of nourishment. However, many of us have been handed theological scorpions from our parents, our tradition, and from religious authority figures. What do I mean by theological scorpions? I mean beliefs about God, Jesus, the Bible, or the church that cause harm. Sometimes these have been passed along unknowingly. Our mentors intended to give us good things and did not realize how much those beliefs would sting. While some theological scorpions have been left behind over the centuries, there are others that are still far too common in Christian communities around the globe, like ones that are raised by our text from Genesis today. The most explicit of which is the belief that God causes or allows disaster to befall a community as a form of punishment. We humans, we're meaning-making creatures. We are always looking for patterns and purpose. It's part of the survival skill set we have evolved. When we notice that violent weather is preceded by certain animal behavior, for instance, it's easier to recognize the signs that the next storm is coming and be prepared and survive it. So it's natural that when humans witness or experience disaster, we look for patterns that might explain what caused it or how to see it coming in the future. We've evolved with the skill to learn from our experiences. Unfortunately, this meaning-making skill, when combined with belief in an all-powerful God in control of everything, has led to some particularly deadly theological scorpions. And this is where I want to turn our attention to the story we read from Genesis 18. This story of Abraham negotiating with God about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah precedes the story of the destruction of those cities, a famous story that has fueled at least 1,500 years of scapegoating. And let me be 100% clear here. The moral failure of Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing to do with sex or sexuality. There are other places in scripture where their failings are detailed, and it has to do with having enough to eat and not sharing it. The interpretation that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has anything to do with sexuality doesn't appear in any Christian or Jewish documents until around the same time as the fall of Rome in the fifth century. At that time, there were people who wanted to blame that disaster on Rome's tolerance of men who slept with other men. 
the emerging prejudice shaped the interpretation of the text, not the other way around. The association between Sodom and sexual orientation didn't enter the English language until the 1400s. But it has been a pernicious and deadly association that keeps emerging as Christian leaders have responded to countless disasters in the 20th and 21st centuries, including the AIDS epidemic and the attack on the World Trade Center. Some people look at this part of Genesis and interpret it through a certain set of beliefs they already have. Beliefs like the Bible is infallible, God is all-powerful and nothing happens outside of God's will. God hates sin and punishes sinners. Read through these lenses, this pair of stories seems to be primarily about God destroying these cities because they deserved it. And therefore, whenever disaster strikes, it makes sense to look for who deserved punishment. But what if we swap out those beliefs? What happens, for instance, if we swap out the Bible is infallible for the Bible is a record of human communities trying to find God in their experiences? When we do that, we can notice a few new things. For instance, this story was first written down during the Babylonian exile when the government and religious leaders of Judea were taken captive. The people who wrote it down did not see Sodom or Gomorrah crumble, but they did see their own beloved Jerusalem torn apart. They were carried away from it. They longed to go home. Maybe these stories show us how they tried to make sense of those experiences. We are told in this passage that God has heard cries about Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. People are suffering, and God is investigating those complaints in a way that's very reminiscent of God hearing the cries of the captive Hebrew people in Egypt. This is the God who does not ignore injustice. It's a helpful, nourishing belief, especially for those who are in exile after their home was invaded. They want to believe in a God who hears their cries and will act in response. But... If disasters are a punishment from God, part of God's justice, will they have a home to return to? Jerusalem was in disarray when they were captured and taken away. Will it be gone? Will God destroy it like God destroyed Sodom? They don't want to believe that. That stings too much. There's a scorpion hidden in that story. And so they grab on to another nourishing part of their theological tradition 
to counterbalance the story of God's justice, God's mercy. They balance the story of the God who acts decisively in the face of injustice with a story of Abraham believing in God's mercy enough to press and press and press, testing its limits. Are you merciful enough to spare a whole city for 50 righteous people? What about 20? What about 10? Perhaps embedded in this interaction is the heartache of the captives in Babylon who have left family in Jerusalem. Surely, if there are 10 righteous people remaining, God will not destroy Jerusalem. I see this section of Genesis as an illustration not of God's character, but of the human community doing the work of theology. The push and pull and tug and tension of grappling with those questions. What do we actually believe about God? Where did those beliefs come from? What are the implications of those beliefs for what is happening in our world today? That is the work of theology, and it's work that we can see happening throughout history. While the Nazi party was using Christian theology to justify their genocidal policies, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others insisted that Jesus called them to resist nationalism and protect the lives of their Jewish neighbors. In the height of the Atlantic slave trade, when pastors across Europe and the Americas were using the Bible to justify enslaving other human beings, William Wilberforce and large groups of Quakers leveraged their money and political positions to outlaw the slave trade because they recognized Jesus calling them to treat all human beings with dignity as beloved children of God. It is precisely because belief in God can be so dangerous that this work of holding up theological eggs, the nourishing heartbeat of the faith, is a vital task of the church. Nourishing and healthy beliefs about God have given many of us strength to release those scorpions that sting and poison and kill. I am not willing to relinquish the Christian faith to those who are intent on telling a particular story about God, no matter how much harm it causes. I want to hand out as many eggs as possible to future generations, starting with the idea that God is still speaking and that as human experiences change, so can our theology. And so here I am 
in a pulpit at a Christian church naming the scorpions and trying to imagine how we can fill our hands and our heads and our hearts with actual nourishment instead. This is a critical time in the life of the Christian church in America. Many of us can see the ways that theological scorpions are causing harm in our nation. Many of us feel the discomfort of identifying ourselves as Christian at this time in this country. But beloved church, we here have inherited so many eggs, so many rich, healing and healthy beliefs about God. We have experienced the God who celebrates the diversity of sexual orientations and gender identities. We know God is one who protects the vulnerable. We believe that God loves all of creation. These beliefs about God matter more now than ever. This September, our church will be hosting a community read of the book, Jesus and John Wayne. It was written by a professor at Calvin and is an excellent examination of some of the most powerful and harmful beliefs that are at work in American Christianity today. And the question that I want all of us to be asking as we read this book is this. What do we believe about God that is the necessary counterpoint to the theologies that are fueling oppression? And how do we share these eggs, these life-giving, nourishing possibilities with those who are desperately hungry for hope? Amen.